All right, if you would, turn to Psalm 4. Now, this is a standalone sermon, but it actually is connected to our series on Romans, which starts next, or we pick back up next week, will be in Romans 12 and 13. There are devotionals outside on the table. You may be wondering, but it has the same cover as all the others, yes, and it has the same introduction as all the others, yes. However, the other material is different for your day-to-day worship uh, or day-to-day devotion. So if you'd like to pick up a hard copy of that, grab one off, uh, off of the table outside, the welcome table. It starts tomorrow in preparation for the coming Sunday as we begin Romans 12. We'll do Romans 12, 13, and then Robbie is going to preach Easter for us. I want to pause here and say thank you to Matt for his faithfulness uh, in, in the uh, Advent series. <clears throat> Um, so just so, so, just to remind you guys, it's not because I'm lazy and don't think I have anything new to say about Advent. We recognize that as a church, it is a wonderful opportunity to invest in the coming generations of leaders in the church. And uh, we are adamant that guys have to be able to preach the birth of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ. If you remember a couple of years ago, we flip-flopped, and Robbie did Advent, and Matt did Easter, and so they're getting the opportunity to do that, and I want to thank you, the congregation, for supporting and loving them so well through that. Uh, We are unconcerned with a cult of personality here and want uh, for you to have a variety of voices that will help uh, equip you in the fullness of the counsel of God's Word. Each of us has a different way of saying it, and that is a gift to you. Also be praying that the Lord would entrust others for whom we could invest for the future of the church. We have a couple of young men right now who are considering uh, whether or not they want to be pastoral interns here. So be praying for that, that we would have the chance to build up. Chris Blackman, who is our RUF minister, came through our intern program. You'll get to hear from him from time to time, but he is awfully busy these days traveling. And so uh, I want to I thank uh, all of you and them for their efforts. So uh, you'll get to hear from Robbie at Easter. All right, now back to Psalm 4 and the reason that we need to learn how to fight. Again, unity is not something that you can just wave a wand and have, right? Our emotions, our hearts, uh, the difficulties that, that come with being in community with other people, uh, the frustrations, all of that can, can lead to uh, disunity. It can lead to us fighting, right? That's just a reality. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen people. We're saints, yet sinners. And so we need to learn how to fight. Too often as Christians, I think, we, we have tried to kind of skirt this issue uh, in some ways that are insanely unhealthy, right? We, we need to know what are the tools by which we can move toward each other. Now, let me pause and, and give, an, give an aside that I think is very important. I am not talking about using this as a method uh, to escape consequence. That is going to be critical to this sermon. Because if some of you hear, well, Cameron, what you're doing is allowing the oppressor or the abuser or whatever it may be, you're giving them the ability to call a timeout and call for this application of God's rules and to get out from under the consequence. Did you hear what was said in our assurance of pardon? Paul calls for the thief not only to not steal anymore, what else is he to do? He is actually to, or she, there are she thieves out there. Uh, <laughs> they are actually <clears throat> called, have what they need, now have it. They are to flip from being ambassadors of darkness to becoming agents of reconciliation and light. 
So please if, do not hear that this is a method by which we are to escape consequence. In fact, the one who is in Christ is willing to receive the fullness of the consequence of their sin as the Lord allows, knowing that they don't have to bear the full consequence in eternity. See, it is nothing to pay restitution in this life. It's all God's anyway. We're working, we're playing with house money. Remember Zacchaeus' example, who was a, a, he was a publican, he was a, a, a tax collector, and a thief. And that dude stole all the time. And when he's redeemed, Jesus didn't even tell him, he decides, I'm going to give back up to four times what I stole. So it's very important that as we look at this as the banks of the river to learn how to fight, that it is in no way uh, uh, brushing over egregious sins, or it is in no way an attempt to get out from under the consequences of what we've done. And we're actually going to see that in David's example here. Now, a couple things just about the book of Psalms. Or Psalms, it breaks up into five books. Now, Psalm 4 occurs in the first book, which is all about the reign of David. But it's very interesting because it's not the glorious reign of David. It actually covers uh, the, the period in which the kingdom is in ruins, by and large. In fact, it is one of the reasons that it is lament-heavy. You have almost, uh, uh, almost all of the Psalms in the first book are laments. It's true also in the second book of the Psalms. You really don't get to the praise Psalms until the people are in exile. That's interesting, if you think about it. So this earthly king is struggling under the weight of the crown that has been placed upon him in the covenant. But he is also teaching us uh, that how we are to live in light of the fact that the Lord has placed honor and glory upon us, as Psalm 8 tells us, uh, that, that we have been crowned with something as well and have great responsibility. And so Psalm 4 also has a historic circumstance. The historic circumstance is stated actually at the beginning of Psalm 3. Now, you only have a few instances in the Psalms where they are historically located for the purpose of worship. Now, the situation that's being described in the first few psalms of book one is, is the situation with Absalom. Now, you can read this for yourself. It's 2 Samuel uh, chapters 13 through 18. If you want to know more of the background, I'll run through it fairly quickly so that we can get to Psalm 4. But the circumstance is Amnon, one of David's sons, takes advantage of Tamar, one of David's daughters. So essentially, it would be his stepsister, in, in essence. He ravages her, and then he kicks her out to suffer the consequence of his sin. David more than be angry. His son, uh, Absalom, is more than angry. In fact, Absalom is seething. He plans and he waits for two years as to how he will kill Amnon. And he does. He kills him. To, to, to vindicate his sister, which actually, interestingly, doesn't do anything to vindicate his sister. It doesn't actually help his sister at all. In fact, she doesn't get mentioned again in the book of 2 Samuel. She disappears. Then, that's not enough for Absalom. He has lost faith in his father to be able to render justice, and so he seizes the kingdom for himself in arrogance. Now, let me say this. As I have read 2 Samuel 13 through 18, I am insanely sympathetic to Absalom. In fact, I'm a little concerned that he didn't kill Amnon faster. 
but I also get the, 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 how sweet revenge is when you plot and you let somebody think they're going to get away with it and you take them out to a meal and you kill them with sheep shears. I've never done that, by the way, and I don't think you should. But, but I'm sympathetic, although I recognize it as sinful. Right? I'm a justice guy. My mother was an abused woman. Uh, I, when it comes to abuse and things of that nature, my blood boils very quickly. I do not turn to God's law first. I do not turn to worship. I do not rest in my anger. I want to give full vent. That is not okay, by the way. Even if you would say, yeah, but certain circumstances. No, we're not the law. And that is insanely difficult, isn't it? But Absalom keeps going further and further and further as he rends the kingdom. He doesn't seek the Lord. He doesn't pursue what the Lord would have him do. And the result is Absalom loses his life and causes the kingdom to be in insane disarray. This is the circumstance in which these psalms are being written. This is in the midst of all that, okay? So it's very important for us background-wise as we look at Psalm 4. Now, as I step into reading Psalm 4, uh, the headings matter. Because they, they tell us some things. Now think about this. This is a song that would have been sung in worship. So it was intended to be instructive. It's not just David's personal journal. It was, it was David's personal struggle as given to the people of God because he knew we would struggle in the same way. So give your attention to the reading of God's word in light of that. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall, you, shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, what's interesting is David teaches us straight away which way we are to run when we have a difficult circumstance that we're wrestling with. What does he teach us? Well, he teaches us we turn first to the Lord. Right? That should be the orienting factor for any circumstance in which we struggle. Right? And no matter how, how imminent the circumstance, no matter the difficulty of the circumstance, you can do this very quickly but, but when you are in distress, David would say your first best move is to orient yourself to the Lord. Why? Based on what? Well, for David, it's because the Lord has heard him and responded to him in the past. This is incredibly important for us as God's people to, on a regular basis, take stock of the ways in which God has been good to us, answered prayers, been kind to us, so that we have that in our, in our memory banks for the Holy Spirit to use to, to help move us toward the Lord, right? And, and Because it's easy to forget, isn't it? It's easy to say, what have you done for me lately, Lord? Meaning the last 15 seconds 
We live in a very uh, immediate society, right? And we forget uh, what has happened in the past, and that usually has very little bearing on the present. But that's not true for David, and it ought not be true for God's people. We ought to cry out to the Lord because he's been good to us again and again. Over the last few days, I took the opportunity to reflect on 2022 and just kind of go back through the journals and just see uh, how the Lord had been at work in in my life and in many of your lives. And it was interesting. It was an interesting perspective to to think about where where was I when I sat down with, with these folks in February and things seemed so dark. And it seemed like the Lord was so far away. And to only have him in the months to come uh, work out in great beauty and redemption, something for his glory and our joy and hopefully will be a gift for the life of the world. That happened over and over and over again where I thought, man, why, why in those moments did I trust so little? Why did I lean so hard at times on my own understanding? Even the circumstances that were difficult and aren't quite resolved again and again and again I saw where the Lord was trying to show me, be patient, take your time. You are resurrected. You are an eternal being. You don't have to be in a hurry with the sword and justice. But you also, you let it go, right? So we can pace ourselves to make sure we are oriented rightly. Because my wife can tell you, with parenting, (laughs) there was a number of times where something would get said or happen, and I I I would get turnt, as the kids say. And I would start to go in, and Susan would be like, whoa, 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 that's not what they mean. That's not at all what they mean. And I would have to turn it like, and that's why you're a great kid. And I'm going to buy you some ice cream. Dang it, I should have I should just kept quiet, right? So how, how often do, in, in the speed, the velocity of our anger and indignation, do, do we discover that we're just wrong? And there's really something deeper at work. And we need to really connect with where is God at work. So this is what David is doing. He's orienting us. He is, his own son is trying to destroy the kingdom. If Absalom had his way, he would have killed David. He would have slaughtered them all. Because he was a man of war. And he was angry. And he felt justified. And, it was, and he was, in a sense. There was a moral situation that had not been dealt with justly. So David teaches us, go to the Lord. And then he does something very interesting that is unique in all the Psalms. And this is the only Psalm where this occurs. He turns to and addresses his frenemies. Right? So you got to understand, these folks, yes, they are enemies of David's, but they're family. They're family members. They're other Israelites. And the Hebrew term here is not just any men. It's men who are in power. He's saying to them, men who are in power, how long? Will you continue to slander me, essentially? Turn his honor into shame. How long will you waste your breath on me? How long will you attack? And what good is it actually doing you? These are are lies, much of what was being said about David at this time. There was a part that was true, and we're going to get to that. He actually says, be angry. You have a right to be angry. There's a circumstance in which you ought to be mad at me. But you can't take that and use it as opportunity to say all these other things. How often do we see this? Where there's a circumstance for which there's a justifiable question or even justifiable anger, but yet we go too far. We use it as an opportunity to really destroy someone's character. You've got to remember, you're talking about the covenant king of God. 
which is interesting that in this psalm and in other psalms, he doesn't flex his power. He doesn't tell them, you shut your mouth, I am the king, I have a sword in my fist, and I will kill you all. In fact, he desperately did not want Absalom to die. That was one of his mighty men going off script, doing what he thought was best. And so here he is, he's addressing them. He's calling his frenemies to repentance. He's calling them into the very process in which he himself, that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So so who is it that determines who's godly? God does. Now, how much of our current conversations are us flexing, saying, no, I'm on God, you're not. I'm godly, you're not. Based on what? Well, because I, 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 I voted the right way. B- 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 because I've read the right books, because I've got the right superior theology. How often are we in arrogance trying to determine godliness based on preference? Be careful, people of God. Be careful. It's easy to get spun up. It's easy to think that the way you think is the right way. There's no possible way that any single person thinks completely right. It's baked into the cake. It's a feature, not a bug. You are limited. You were limited from the start. We cannot declare something in and of ourselves that God himself doesn't declare. And then he says, the Lord hears when I call to him. So he's making it known, look, I'm praying. What are you doing? You're talking trash about me. I'm not here talking trash about you. I'm talking to God about resolution. This is an important pattern for how we ought to fight. Too much of our discourse is wasted in the earthly realm. Is it not? It's just all chatter and nonsense, and we complain and we grumble. How does Scripture address those who grumble? It ain't good. It really doesn't lead you to where you want to go. You don't move God's hand passive-aggressively. You also don't move God's hand aggressive-aggressively. God moves his hand based on his love and care for us, his people, based on his own sovereign will, his own redemptive will. So we need to make sure that we, in right order, address the situation to the right person who can actually bring about what we ought long for, which is reconciliation, as much as, Romans would tell us, it depends on us. And then he says, look, be angry. Now the Hebrew word here could also mean be anxious or be stirred up. Now the better translation seems to be be angry because of how Paul picks this up and says, be angry and do not sin and don't let the sun go down in your anger. Clearly in the Greek, it is the word anger. I'm going to trust Paul to have read it closer to to true than for those of us who've tried to make it say something different hundreds of years later. But he's saying you have a right to be angry. There was an injustice. I was angry. It says so in, in, in 2 Samuel 13. David was angry about the circumstance. But about his business for about two years. So he says be angry. But don't sin. There are things that we ought to be righteously angry about. Abuse? Absolutely. Trafficking? Absolutely. Racism and all of its ill effects? Absolutely. 
uh, uh, lying, theft, crime, absolutely. The death of the unborn, absolutely. We should be angry. But here's the trick. We should be angry and not sin. How are you going to do that? How, how, how in the world could we ever do that? I can tell you. When, when I am confronted with a justice issue, my wife can tell you. And justice issues for me can include you cut me off in line. You cut me off on the freeway. Uh, you know, you bumped me at Target. I don't know. Uh, uh, it doesn't take much for me to suddenly become righteously angry and just in my own image. But, but, but we recognize that this is where, this is where it, it can't depend on us. Who among you has the power to switch off your anger once it starts bubbling out? Nobody does. So he's saying, all right, look, be angry, but be careful with it. So he's saying, ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. So he's saying, don't go around. They didn't have social media back then. So don't tell the town crier who was their Twitter in the day uh, to go and tell everybody. Right? So before you, make sure you're oriented rightly about what you're angry about. Make sure that it's a righteous anger. Make sure that you have your facts straight before you start putting the situation on blast. He actually is calling them to do Psalm 1. Meditate on the law of the Lord. Take time to make sure that what you're angry about is truly a moral issue. And then how you ought respond to that moral issue in justice, and in righteousness. And so they are to ponder these things, take the time. What's interesting is this psalm is referred to as an evening psalm. So by virtue of what David is writing here, he is doing what he has already asked them to do. He is pondering in his own heart the circumstance and what ought be done. Now notice the next response that David calls for. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Now this would have occurred the next morning. They were, uh, as far as like daily devotions were concerned, they would have worshipped daily. They would have offered sacrifices daily of some kind. And so what he's calling for is after you've meditated, after you've acknowledged your anger, now turn in humility and worship the Lord. Seek the Lord. Notice how he's bookended this. The circumstance has distressed him. He turns to the Lord, not to his enemies or frenemies. He calls for his frenemies to, to repent along with him. Let's get this right. So he's saying there's a process by which we can get at what you long for, which is justice. There's a process by which we can get at what we long for, which is restoration and redemption for the life of the world. And so what he has called for thus far is to meditate upon God's law. Make sure you are rightly oriented there first. Let, let God's law dictate how you will respond. And then turn and worship in humility. And now, now we're ready to fight. Fight toward each other for the glory of God. Fight for the right things that matter more. Which is why he then turns and says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? So how often... Do we judge things based on what someone can do for us, right? The leader that can get us the best tax breaks, me, my bracket, I don't care about yours. Might cost you, I don't want it to cost me. 
even though that may not even be what's best for the circumstance societally. But how often are we looking for who can show me some good? And that is our primary rubric. Let me warn you, people of God. Do you know that the Antichrist that is spoken of leader, it's not 1984 that's coming, for those of you who know Orwell's 84. We may get there. What he's going to offer first is brave new world. You want to be at peace? Do you want to be able to relate to each other without friction? Do you want, do you, do you want to be well fed? I got you. I just need you to take this mark and worship these weird beasts that look like frogs. <laughs> right? It's so, it's, and one of the reasons those images are so distorted, and we look at that and think, who in their right mind would do that? Careful. Careful, we've got some things that we've fallen for that are insanely distorted and are worse than frogs. And so he's, he's making it clear, you want to be careful that you don't just look to who's the judge who will give me the verdict I want. Instead, you should, he calls for, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. This is a call to the ironic benediction from Numbers chapter 6. What does it mean for the Lord's face to shine upon us? Well, it means that God is present with his people. He is calling for the Lord to step in as judge. He is calling for the Lord to be present and decide what is best. He is calling for the Lord to bless his people. This should be the distinction for us. Right? Not, not who will get me the result I've already predetermined that will satiate my anger and what I think is just. But instead, are you willing to submit to the Lord, to the Lord's presence and his understanding and wisdom of what is best for a circumstance? And he goes on. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What is this grain and wine abounding a reference to? Well, this is about the party staying crunk all the time because the vats overflow. Right? And he's saying it is more important. It is more important that we honor the Lord and what, is, what matters to him than for us to have an overflow of the things that bring us earthly joy that is passing. It is more important that justice be served for the Lord our God and recompense to be paid and reconciliation to be pursued and consequence to be levied to the glory of God than it is for us to flourish in the earthly way. And how often is that what actually competes with our visions of justice? How often is that what competes for our hearts and imaginations over the law of God and the worship of God? And then he says, and if this process, as we follow this process, as I enter this process, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. Now, what he didn't just say is, I know that the Lord is going to rule for me. And we're going to see that here in just a few moments. It is a righteous judge. He knows that the Lord will do what is most redemptive and best for his creation, his image bearers. Consider Christ. Consider Christ in light of this. Now, Jesus, who was the king of the universe, as we just saw in the Advent series he, he, he veiled his glory. He veiled his kingship to take on the fullness of our humanity without sin. Right? 
And, and many theologians refer to his earthly uh, existence as his humiliation. Have you any idea how humiliating it would be to be the king of the universe who participated in creation? To have to go around under normal circumstances and suffer so many fools, including those who were closest to you? Remember, those who, who, who ought to have known better were like, hey, Mom, can you see if we can get the right hand and the left hand? Because it looks like it's fixing to be open. And so James and John's mother go and say, hey, Jesus, can my kids have, you know, special status? He's like, you don't know what you're talking about. The baptism I'm about to suffer, you can't handle. How about Peter? I don't care if the other 11 fools fall straight away. I will die with you. I am ride or die. I'm in this to win it. Bro, you ain't even going to make it past the cock crowing before you are giving it up. You're quitting, which is what happened. And how often did it even just get worse from there? How often did you hear in Jesus a groaning, why do I have to put up with this? There were some very honest moments, right? And so he, he, in his humiliation still, which way did he turn? Did he take matters into his own hands? No. He prayed to God his Father. He turned to his Father, and then he called his frenemies to repentance. Even the Pharisees, you remember. The worst of the worst. The religious folk. And notice that he was angry. But he never let his anger become sinful. You may say, what about that fashioning of the bullwhip and flipping over the tables? That wasn't sinful. He was clearing out the space where they were trying to say there was a distinct separation racially and economically and gender-wise. He was saying, uh, no. It's not sinful to call that unjust and to deal with it and to call for it to be a house of prayer instead of a house of wickedness. His zeal for those things was profound. Notice, he made a bullwhip when he didn't have to do any of that. What do you think he was, if we could use our divine imaginations for a moment, what do you think Jesus was considering as he fashioned that bullwhip? Because you know he could have called down a legion of angels. Remember the, the point at which he was in the garden and, and they said, uh, he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they all fall down. And just the power of his word. So I can't help but imagine that Jesus was doing something similar with his anger as he's fashioning that bullwhip. He took the time to make something, to get his anger in line with the righteousness of God, to make sure that he didn't go over the line, that he didn't do more than was necessary with that bullwhip. And yes, that's not in Scripture. I'm not going to write a book about it. It's not going to be the, the preparing of the divine bullwhip, a study of Jesus' anger. If you want to do that, that's your business. You just... Just put me in the acknowledgments. But do understand that Jesus suffered so much on our behalf. We were his frenemies. We were his enemies. We, we can't even call ourselves friends until after he redeems us. So this is a process that Jesus himself embodied in his flesh and in his resurrection. This is how we ought fight. We need to make sure that what we're fighting for is glorifying to God in the first place. We need to make sure that what we're fighting toward is reconciliation. We need to make sure that we are not exonerating in ways that God himself would not exonerate. 
You don't get to repent and think that that's, that does away with the consequence. It doesn't. It actually opens up the opportunity for restoration, reconciliation, and restitution. We try to use it as a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, it gives you the ability to actually bring about true redemption. Consider where this might be applied in marriage. How often is the person closest to us the one that we fight away from? How often do we let our anger with our spouse spill over in its immediacy and in its vitriol and in its, in its ungodliness? How often do we do this as parents? Do you think this is not applicable for that circumstance first and foremost before we even try to do it amongst the 200 of you? Much less, let's just go denomination-wide. Let's go internet-wide. We might want to learn how to practice this locally, spend some time on that and away from some of these other avenues so that we learn how to fight so that it becomes second nature to us, that we would run first to the throne of grace in a time of distress to receive both mercy and grace as Hebrews 4 calls us to. And again, David as king is not asking them to do something he is unwilling to do. Again, this psalm is evidence of him doing the first part, which is meditating upon God's law, though he is angry, in the night. Notice Psalm 5, verses 1 through 3. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Did you hear that? David has called for them, meditate at night, get up in the morning and offer right sacrifice in humble worship. He is now doing what he is calling them to do. And he's willing to be patient and not move until the Lord says, here is what you ought to do. Now as Reformed folks, this makes us a little nervous, right? Hearing from the Lord, well, we'll need to hear from him. We've got a whole book of stuff he said. Let's just stick to that. You're right, that is the banks of the river to anything you would hear from the Lord, any sort of discernment you would gain, any sort of word that he might give you, yes, it must be consistent with God's word. I remember one time, there was a, a, a young patient, <clears throat> back when I was a physical therapist, his name was Justice. And Justice, uh, his, his father had abused his mother such that Justice suffered trauma in utero such that when, when, when he was born, he had profound physical and mental disabilities. And when they brought him in, I was holding Justice. I, I was not a hand therapist. The other holds up inside me, and I said, and I remember it ended up being a prayer, because anytime you, you say something, you're talking to God at some level. I was like, if I could find your father, I would, I would try to kill him a thousand times over. I would do such damage to him. That, the, that people would not even know how to comprehend it. It felt pretty righteous. And I know, don't, don't get uncomfortable. I don't hear words. You can't pay me to get a word from the Lord for you. But in that moment, I felt the Spirit speak. And what good would it do to justice? If you want to do something redemptive, why don't you abide with this young man forever how long it takes to help bring about 
Redemption and reconciliation for him. Now, what was very interesting is what happened next. I turned, and his mother walked through the door, and she was a resident at the rescue mission. And she said, Cameron? I looked at her, and there it began. And we had the opportunity to, when she left the rescue mission, to, to fill up an apartment full of furniture and get stuff that would actually suit Justice's uh, difficulties and some of the things that, that were going to be challenges for him. And we walked with her for a number of years as the Lord allowed, uh, and, and it was hard. It was hard. There are no straight lines in these things. But this, this, is, this is the deal. Like, if we want to learn how to fight, we've got to learn how to be patient. We've got to learn how to watch. We've got to learn how to uh, not pick up the sword first. There is a place for justice. His father needed to do jail time, 100%. I might even argue some other stuff too. But, but it was not going to serve justice. Who needed so desperately people to come alongside him to, to, to try to help make his circumstance better than what it was going to be because going, going forward, it did not look good. And I'm not touting what we did. We, we made mistakes all along the way. We failed on many occasions to love well. But on the whole, it was, it was a beautiful moment of, of recognizing that my rage doesn't serve the kingdom. That energy, that creativity is much better served in the long, slow work of redemption. And there, was another, there has to be another source to take care of the, the justice for justice's father. Let's turn back to how David continues. Now, Psalm 6 is the first penitential psalm. Don't you think that's interesting in the order here? You have David meditating in the evening on a, a difficult circumstance. You have David worshiping in the morning and, and standing his watch. And the result of that is the first penitential psalm. Notice what David says in the first three verses. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So what David is showing us is that part of repentance is to cry out to the Lord and to seek some sort of relief. Now, what David is not asking for is that God pass over what he's done and there be no consequence. Now, we know that because in Psalm 7, he calls for God to serve as judge and listen at what he asks for. Picking it up in verse 3. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is a wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So David in great humility is teaching us that this way to fight is, is really, it begins with repentance on our part. It, it begins with us orienting ourselves to the Lord our God, his law, and his worship. Family, if you, if you want to learn how to fight well in your marriage, how to fight well in your parenting, how to fight well in your neighboring, how to fight well in your membership at a local church, how to fight well as a member of a broader denomination, how to fight well as part of a citizen of, of, of a country, this is the way. It is the way that will lead us to look more like Jesus 
It won't always satisfy our lust for blood. It won't always, in real time, satisfy our longing for justice. But what it will do is bring about far more possibilities for reconciliation and redemption than the ways of war and anger and moralizing and canceling that we've come up with. It will actually lead to a truer justice for the long haul. Listen to what Derek Kidner says about this, uh, this psalm. He says, The approach of night with its temptation to brood on past wrongs. How many of you? How many of you this is your story? How often does night bring the opportunity for you to brood on past wrongs? Not your own. Everybody else is around you. This is my struggle, right? When everything starts to get quiet and you're just trying to fall asleep and you begin to think about the things that you're frustrated with, the injustices and the, the things that aren't right and you brood on them, not pray, not pray, not bring it to the Lord, but brood on them trying to figure out how you can fix it or how you can bring about justice, how you can bring about revenge. So this is the temptation for David. And in present perils, only challenges David to make his faith explicit. This distress brings, it allows me to reorient myself to the Lord my God and make my faith explicit and urge it on others as a committal of one's cause and oneself to a faithful creator. Is this what we're committed to? Are we committed to a faithful creator or are we looking for an earthly king or queen with a sword in their fist? Are we looking for earthly solutions that will not bring about the kind of justice and eternal change that actually beautifies the bride of Christ? So let me ask you, what role does God's law play in how you handle conflict with other Christians? You may say, now be careful because you're going to start sounding like the rich young ruler if you're not careful. Well, I, I ain't murdered nobody, so that's step one, right? I ain't lied about them, step two. Bore false witness. I didn't, I didn't take their spouse from them. Is that, is that the sum of how God's law ought to be applied to our anger? No, it is not. And Jesus showed us that with the rich young ruler. He wasn't talking about anger, he's talking about salvation. But even more, anger itself is not governed by what you don't do entirely. It is far more about what you do and the heart and the ethic that you have as shaped by Christ. Why would I treat my wife or my children as less than worthy of this when God himself has not done that to us? much less a friend or a neighbor or, or one of you, right? I'm convicted how quickly, how easily I don't turn to the Lord in matters of family. I don't, I, don't, I don't lay it down before the Lord as I ought, as quickly as I should. So this is where we've got to ask the question and cultivate this. This doesn't come natural. You will not naturally turn to God's law, God's word, to try to frame your response. It takes work. And you oftentimes have to open yourself up to counsel, wise counsel, because are you to be trusted alone with God's word? Is that how the, the church ought work? 
is we just, hey, I got a word, you got a word, my word's as good as your word. Is this how we figure things out? No, we, we, we submit things to wise counsel. And we're willing to submit to the consequences. That's what's been so troubling about so many of the people who have fallen from ministry who just get right back into ministry as if there was no consequence. As if, as, if, as if that shouldn't be taken away from them. They have a right to be able to stand before God's people when they have abused the sheep. Uh-uh. Now, having just said that, I feel like somebody probably will write that down somewhere. And I may hear those words again someday, but, but I hope, if I am guilty, that I would follow this process and be willing to submit to the consequence. Because remember, being a Christian is the highest calling, not the individual roles. It's more important that God be glorified. And then how, how should worship frame our goal for conflict? How many times when you have conflict with somebody else at church, you don't come? That's a good indicator of what you think the role that worship plays in conflict. See, one of the ways we should think about the Lord's Day Sabbath is this is a ceasefire. This is where we get to practice what's it going to look like when we are all resolved, all our conflicts are resolved, and we are reconciled fully to one another. Now, here's what I didn't just say. I didn't just say we pretend like nothing's wrong. No, we actually act as if what is wrong will not have the final say. And that on one day, for one hour and a half or so, we can dwell together and worship and seek the Lord to be the judge between us. But how often is it the first thing that we give up in conflict? So I would encourage you to meditate on these things. I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to teach you how to fight. Fight toward him. Fight toward his people. Fight for what is good and true and just and Christ-like. So Psalm 4 teaches us that God's law and humble worship serve as the banks of the river for seeking peaceful restoration in conflict. If any of you have heard me say something about conflict that you're confused about or you're kind of wondering how that would apply, let's have a conversation about it. Because I want to make sure that no one misheard and, and again, that thinks that this is a means by which we can get out from under consequence. No. Repentance is the willingness actually to submit to the consequences. Too often, that is one of the first things that we see in discipline cases in the church. I know that's an uncomfortable topic. But when people are saying they're repentant, and then we say, okay, but yes, here's the consequence. They're like, whoa, 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 uh-uh. No, I'm repentant. <laughs> no, you're not. No, you're not. Here's the process. And if you're truly repentant, you should not be afraid to engage the process and maybe lose in consequence a role or your reputation or whatever it may be. Because Christ stands with you. And so, Christ Community Church, I want to also say, I should have said this earlier, there's nothing going on that made me preach this sermon, by the way. Just in case you're like, what is going on? Cameron's been out of town a lot. Is there some conflict going on? No, I'd like to get ahead of the curve. And it got me to thinking since we were in Romans, and Romans is so much about unity, and we're about to really pick that up in earnest in Romans 12. For each other, how can we have a unity that is truly biblical? So that was the impetus for this sermon, not a particular circumstance. All right, let's learn how to fight. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as our Lord and our God, as our Redeemer and Creator.
And we, we submit our conflicts to you. We, we submit uh, our anger, our, our longings for justice, our, our desire for things to be made right. We submit those things to you because we and our passions, just as we see throughout Scripture, we can make a real mess of things just as Absalom did. We can think ourselves being moral and just only to look nothing like Jesus. Help us, Father, learn how to fight according to your law, according to your redemption, according to your call. Help us to trust that you are the just judge, that you will take care of what needs to be taken care of in terms of justice. God, help us to learn to be more patient and long-suffering like you, to reflect your character as displayed in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. God, would you help us to grow in true, fought-for unity, true unity that was bought with the blood of Christ. Help us be your bride as a beacon in the world that so desperately needs to see that there is hope and there is redemption. In Christ's name, amen.